Hebrews. Um, just a reminder, we, as we start a new book this morning, that this is our, our, our typical process here, is that we are preaching through um, a book of Scripture, just chapter by chapter, over however many months, weeks, um, however long it takes us to work through it. We do that intentionally because we feel like we can better understand the text, the author's point, his, his goal, if we are looking at it in totality, rather than if we're jumping from, hey, this passage one week and another book another week and the Old Testament one week and the New Testament one week and if we're bouncing around um, and so it forces us to do some things it forces us to preach texts that we wouldn't typically preach right it forces us um, to, to wrestle with hard things that would be easy to skirt another aspect is when your personal sin that you're struggling with comes up in the text you're not wondering who told the preacher that week right that it's just the next passage up and at that point you're understanding the spirit is at work he is pursuing you and bringing conviction and kindness, right? That those things are happening and it wasn't that you got ratted out. Um, and so we, we, we tend to preach this way about 99% of the time. We do occasionally step out, but this is what we're doing most of the time. Um, what we've seen is that it, it gives us um, some handles to hold on to, right? And so as we start our first um, Sunday, every time in a new book, we spend a little bit of time at the beginning, which may feel a little more like a college lecture than a sermon, as we set the, the context, the situation, the authorship, the date of, of the passage. Because you know that if you get a letter from the IRS or you get a letter from your sweetheart who's at war, that you do not read those things the same way. <laughs> that the content matters, and it matters based on who sent it and why they sent it. That those type of things are significant. And so as we just finished First Timothy, it mattered to know that Paul, near the end of his life, in the end of his ministry, is writing a letter to a younger minister saying, here's how you're going to deal with false teachers in this city, in this church that I planted. And I love you, Timothy, and I want the church to be a stronghold in the city. It was important when we were in Amos, even just a couple months ago, to know that Amos, when it was written, and that it was a prophetic book, it wasn't a letter. And so we're going to deal with it a little bit differently. So this morning, we're going to begin with just looking at what context we can glean from Hebrews. Um, and you're going, to, you're going to love this. All right. So the first thing we want to ask is who wrote it? We don't know. Right? So, it's unknown. It, it, is, it is a letter that doesn't say, doesn't have an authorship pinned to it. Now, for most of um, the church history, a lot of people have attributed it to Paul. Um, the, the issue with that is Paul, no, and nowhere else do we ever see anything anonymous attributed to Paul. He was always glad to sign his letters and his correspondence. Um, a lot of the thought process of Hebrews seems like Paul, but the stylistic writing um, of the Greek is significantly different. But one of the, the, the probably the primary reasons that we're going to say it wasn't Paul is if you look at chapter 2, verse 3, um, the author pins this word. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord... And it was attested to us by those who heard. Right? And so he's, he's referring to like a secondhand transmission. He's saying like the, the Lord spoke the gospel and then we heard it from those who heard it from him. Paul was glad to let you know that the Lord rescued him. That, that he was knocked on his rear end and the Lord saved him. That he had had a first person close encounter with Jesus. 
that he shared those personal experiences. And this letter claims none of that. And then lastly, one of the the primary themes and one of the the constant allusions that we're going to see in Hebrews is to the priestly system, specifically the high priest. And Paul talks about that basically nowhere else. And so we, we, we can with pretty firm assurance know that Paul did not write this. Now, if you want to ask, well, who did? There is literally a, like a laundry list of guesses out there. Luther, Martin Luther said Apollos wrote it because of how polished it is. Um, Tertullian said Barnabas wrote it. Jude is attributed with it. Peter is attributed with it. Philip is attributed with it. Silas is attributed with it. Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife team, are attributed with it. But ultimately, here's where we're going to land. Um, Origen, another church father, said this. As, as impactful as the letter is, only God knows who wrote it. Right? And so that's where we're going to land. We don't know. The, the content is rich and it's deep, but we do not know for sure the authorship of this letter. So second, when was it written? You're going to begin to find a theme here. Um, if we don't know for sure who wrote it, it's going to be really hard to know when they wrote it. So we're going to find a range. In, in 95 AD, Clement of Rome wrote a letter to the church in Corinth where he quoted from Hebrews. So we know at least by 95 that it has been written. But it had to have been written previously to that for it to have gained some credence as scripture is something that people would have known that he could have just alluded to or referred to. Um, probably on the front end, we're, we're talking late 60s. Um, the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And in um, Hebrews, in chapter 9 specifically, um, the author writes about the temple process in present tense. As though the temple was still standing and the situation was still going on. So most likely we're looking at mid-60s to late-60s where persecution is rising, um, but the temple has yet to be destroyed. Um, So that's what we know, is it's likely before 70 and it is for certain before 95. Who was it written to? Anybody want to wager a guess? Yeah, we don't know. (laughs) We're not sure who the exact congregation or exact city is. Okay, um, Here's what we can glean. That it is written most likely to Jewish background believers. The, the author includes a ton of Old Testament allusions um, of situations. And he just assumes they understand it. That they know it. And so it is most likely written to a group of, of believers who have come out of Judaism. Um, in, and that we know that he knew them. So if we look at chapter 13, if you just want to listen, that's fine. If you want to turn, that's fine as well. In verse 19, he says this. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So we know that they knew him, that he knew them, that he's looking to see them again. Look down at verse 22. So I appeal to you, brothers... Um, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. He writes that after 13 chapters. You should know that our brother Timothy, they have a mutual friend, Timothy, who is Paul's apprentice, has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So greet all of your leaders and all of the saints and those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. And so we know that the author is writing to a, a church, a group of people that he knows, that know him, that, that trust him, and that he's able to minister to. 
So the question then is, what is this? Well, really, it's, it's a hybrid. It is a letter. We kind of see it at the ending. But it's, it's really, it's a sermon. And it's a sermon that has been um, developed intentionally. It's polished. It's put together. It's got analogies and allusions. Like, it's, it's really well thought out. That's then been sent in letter form to minister. Um, we saw that in verse 22. That he says, look, I've written to you briefly. I want this to exhort, to teach, to encourage you. So, when was it written? We don't know. Who was it written by? We're not sure. To who? We're not sure. What it is, we kind of know that. All right. So, what was the purpose? Why was it, why was it written? Again, in, in chapter 13, we'll see that persecution was happening. In verse 3, uh, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. We see in chapter 10, in verses 32 through 34, that, that mistreatment, persecution seems to be going on. If we look at verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's also five or six really big warning passages in this letter. So here's what's going on. The author is writing this to a group of Jewish background believers. And they are struggling. Because persecution is rising, tension is rising, and there is a temptation to want to go back to Judaism. Judaism was legally recognized by the government, and so there was some protection provided. Christianity was was seen as kind of a thorn in the flesh. And so persecution was going to happen more readily to a Christian than it was to a Jew. Think about this as well. Judaism was really tactile. Right? There was a sacrificial system. There were sights and smells and sounds. And, and you literally brought an animal. Right? There, were, there were ceremonial washings to do. There were these things to do to wrap your hands on and to be a part of. And one of the difficulties throughout history that people have had with Christianity is that it's not so much as what we do as to what's been done for us. And so we see this still in the, in the Middle East today, especially in Islam, where, right, where they're told everything to do, everything to think, every way to respond. That there's, there's a rule for how to wash and how many times to wash. Which foot do you step into the bathroom? Which foot do you step out of the bathroom? In every regard, to, to, to remain as pure and holy as possible. Judaism provided some of these things as well. And so now Christianity provides freedom and the spirit to lead and to God, and we're trusting, and we're following, and we're moving after Jesus, right? And so there's a temptation to go, man, we're, we're comfortable with Judaism. We're familiar with Judaism. We understand Judaism. And Christianity, like we're getting mistreated. We're being persecuted. We're being put in jail. We're being beaten. Or, it, or it's coming. What if we just kind of like... Slid back into Judaism and and said, Jesus, thanks, man, but but we're good. And the author is saying, don't do it. Don't return. Like, don't leave the God who is the living God, who has rescued you, who knows you, who's loved you, and go to the system that killed him. There are stark warnings in this book. And so for us this morning, we need to be reminded that there are things in your life that you are comfortable with. That you are familiar with. And some of it is sin. Right? That you're familiar with this old way of living. These old ways of, 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 
um, setting your time and your agenda, these things that you would fill your life to with, or maybe things that you were addicted to, right? It would be easy just to step back in because at least I know that world. For some of you, it would be religious activity. It would be to go back into just, I'm going to do what I can for Jesus' sake and, and maybe he'll like me. Instead of trusting that what he has done is rescue us, that he has freed us, that he has made us his. And so they're looking to exchange a lesser thing for a, for a better thing. They're looking to give away the, the better thing and take back the lesser. To go back to what's familiar rather than to continue to persevere. And so the author of Hebrews is going to say this over and over and over and over again. Jesus is better. And he's just going to build a letter of com- comparison and contrast saying, look at Jesus, he's superior. Look at Jesus, he's better. Look at Jesus, he's enough. Look at Jesus, he's more than that. And he's just going to hold Jesus up. That they would not walk away. And so the letter is going to be to exhort them, to encourage them. But it's also going to be to warn them. And there are going to be some passages in Hebrews that are going to make you highly uncomfortable with the warnings. Right? And that's the point, is that we would see the significance of what's going on. He's also looking to give them assurance. That ultimately he's saying, hey, you remember your Jewish history. That when you were rescued out of Egypt and headed out on the exodus, right, to the promised land. That you got sidetracked and wanted to go back. And ended up spending 40 years wandering because of disbelief and lack of trust. To the point that Moses doesn't even get to enter the promised land. He only sees it from a distance. So he's saying, look, if we're on our way to the promised land, if we're on our way to eternity with Jesus, if that's what we're headed for, then we got to get there together. And our history tells us we can get diverted. We can get sidetracked and, missed it, and miss it. And so this book is, a, is an encouragement to persevere, to stick with it. To give us the benefits of knowing God. That he keeps us. That he gets us there. That the the pleasures of sin are fleeting and not lasting. And ultimately, what the author of Hebrews is doing is this. Is he's asking this question, is Jesus worth it? Because they're literally being beaten, persecuted. Greater persecution is coming. And they can make one minor kind of decision and say, I'm a Jew now. And avoid all of it. And so the question is, is, why would I not? And yet he's going to make a compelling case for why we shouldn't. Listen, this is still um, important today. When Carmen and I moved to the Middle East, we knew that the, the message that we had of saying that Jesus is, is our salvation, he's our hope, he's our everything, right, would get us kicked out of the country and would get other people killed. And so when you understand that it could get someone killed, you have to ask, do I really believe this is worth it? Like, is, 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 if this life is cut short because of belief in Jesus, do we really think that that is enough? That what we are trading in in a shortened, hardened, difficult life is worth the eternal riches and glory that are coming? Because if we don't believe that, then I'm not going to tell you about Jesus because that puts you at greater risk. But if Jesus is incomparable, if he's as great as we believe and say that he is, then a shortened life is nothing in exchange for that. A more difficult life is nothing in exchange for that. 
And listen, we are living in a culture where imprisonment and, and death aren't really something being talked about. But persecution is on the rise. Difficulty is on the rise. Cultural like pressure is on the rise to say, just don't believe the hard stuff. Just don't say those things. Don't say that you agree with those things. Just kind of step over here and be a cultural Christian. And then you can avoid all this like uncomfortable stuff. And so the same question is being asked to us, is Jesus enough? Is he worth it? That is why we're entering into Hebrews. And so this morning, we're simply going to look at the first four verses. It's just a little bit of an intro. And then we will spend the next few months walking through this beautiful book. So let's pick up in verse 1. The author writes, Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so... The author, he just jumps in. There's no like, hey, hope y'all are doing well. Grace and peace to you. It's just like, here we go. I'm going to hold Jesus up. And so verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The Old Testament was compiled um, into 39 books over 1,500 years with some um, 40 or so authors. And God spoke, as we begin to just think through our Old Testament stories... In a variety of ways, right? He spoke and led the people of Israel, right, with a pillar of fire and a, and a cloud, right, and led them. He, he provided for them with quail and with manna to feed them water out of a rock. He did these things revealing himself. He showed up at Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given in power and might to give the law and expectation, right? He called Abram, who became Abraham, a pagan, who did not love God, called him to say, I want you to know me, to trust me, and to follow me, and I'm going to make a nation of you. We see provision for Abram in a ram instead of having to sacrifice his own son. We, we see miracles, angels speaking. We see visions and prophecies like we saw in Amos as he sees um, the, the plumb line. As he's talking about the, the spiritual health of Israel. That, that, that there's visions. That God has spoken in a variety of forms and of fashions to a variety of people over 1,500 years. He spoke through creation. Through rescue. He's spoken. So the first thing I want us to notice in Hebrews is this. God has spoken. And he's done it in a multitude of ways to a multitude of people. And it's been progressive. It was this building thing. As he's moving and pointing us more and more and more to Jesus. So I want to read to us out of Job 26. Because I want us this morning to think of just the significance and, and the bigness of what is going on here. Verse, sorry, chapter 26 of Job is just laying out the, this, the bigness and the power of God. Listen, um, 
in verse 7. He stretches out the north over the void. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads it over his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters, a boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his winds, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? What, what the author is saying is, we can only but glimpse what God has revealed. They are but the outskirts of his ways. How glorious is he. And so this morning, if we have this small view of God... Right, the author of Hebrews is saying, look up, open your eyes and consider creation. Consider what God has done and see that he is far bigger and far greater than you think. The honest truth is, is we can be dulled into just a familiar, like Jesus talk. And he's saying, no, see the, 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 the height and the width and the depth of what God has done. And that we would be in the dark otherwise if God hadn't spoken. If he doesn't reveal himself to us, we don't find him. Verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. When he says in these last days, the, the, the definition of the last days in scripture is this. That once Jesus comes and inaugurates and begins a new covenant, a new um, understanding... That starts the last days, and the last days remain until Jesus comes for us. Right? There is, no, there is no further revelation. This was the final revelation. The final word from the Lord was that He has given His people, and now Jesus has come and, and set forth a covenant with us to say, I'll get you back to the Father. I will take you back to Him. This is the final way. And so it's not a matter of the last days or meaning a brief amount of time. It's simply saying this is the last way God's going to speak. He's going to speak to us through Jesus. And that is going to be sufficient. He then says, look, if I've spoken for 1,500 years to the prophets, a son is greater than the prophet. And so if I spoke to them, how much more have I spoken to my son and revealed myself to him for your sake? That the Son is greater. He has prepared a way. And so one of the reasons we're going into Hebrews is this. Is that all of Scripture is telling the same story. And if we're not careful, we begin to just look at it as these disconnected things happening. But all of, all of creation is... All of Scripture is telling the story of God. Created things with intent. Things were broken. He had a rescue plan in place. And He is restoring things. And they, everything fits into the creation, the fall, the restoration, the redemption. Right? And so as we look at Hebrews, what he's saying is we can begin to look back at the old way, the old way of doing things with the priestly system, with the sacrificial system, and see that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. That he gives us insight into it that's richer and deeper and bigger. That he has prepared for over 1,500 years for us to understand why Jesus came and why he did the things that he did in the way that he did them. So, 
He's going to give us seven words real quick, and we're just going to look at them briefly because they're all going to be walked through in greater detail through the rest of Hebrews. But look at these seven that he just begins as he holds up Jesus. He says, first off, that he was his heir. He appointed him the heir of all things. And it's interesting that he made him the heir before he talks about creation. Before he talks about redemption or rescue. Because he's not saying that Jesus earned the right to be the heir. The recipient of earth and all that it has. He's saying it was always his. Because he's the one that's going to create it as well. It always belonged to him. But due to his faithfulness in our rescue. Due to his faithfulness to the rescue plan. right? That he, he is given the name above all names. He gets it all. He is the heir of all of it. And he invites us in to be his co-recipients of it. The second thing he says is not just that he is the heir, but he's the creator. So he appointed in verse 2 him the, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He created it because he was there. He's pre-existent, that he is God. And so what the author is doing, he's saying, I want you to see Jesus, not just this guy who came and walked, did a few things. He's God. He's always been there. He's the creator. It all belongs to him. Paul writes it this way in Colossians 1, verse 16. He says this. For by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. That Jesus is the creator God. The third word is not just that he's an heir or the creator, but it says he is the radiance of the glory of God. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And, and the best way we can describe this is it's saying, so if God is the sun in the sky, Jesus is the sun rays coming. Right? It's what's touching us. It's what's getting to us. It's what's revealing itself to us. It's what, where we feel the warmth and where we gain what we need. Is Jesus is the radiance of God sh- showing forth. He is the light stepping into the darkness. He is walking in a world. He is God walking amongst his creation. He is pushing back darkness. The fourth thing is not just to see the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And this word imprint is the idea of like a signet ring. Right? The the ring put on wax. That they're the same. They're showing the same image. And what the author is saying is, you want to know God? Look at Jesus. He is the radiance, the outstretching of God. Because he is God. He's the creator. He's preexistent. He's the heir of all things. He's the exact imprint. You look at him, you see God. Because he is God. Again, in Colossians 1, we see Paul. And he writes this in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. And then in uh, chapter 2 verse 9. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's saying God put himself in to human flesh. Right? That he is God. And so what the author again is doing is he's just holding Jesus up and saying, Look at him again. Consider him again. If you have become numb or dull to him, stop. Look once again. He continues, the fifth thing, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
He is not the one who just spun it into motion and then steps back. He's saying he is sustaining creation. He is upholding creation. He is dynamically interested, active, and involved in keeping things together. He's involved. The sixth thing. After making purifications for sins, he's reminding them immediately. Jesus is the one who satisfies the wrath of God. The one who looks at your sins and makes them go away, washes you clean. It was through his life of perfection, of faithfulness, of obedience. His death that was not his to deserve, but it was ours. And then his subsequent resurrection where he beats sin and Satan and death and is alive today. That he made purification for sin. That we are no longer separated from God. He's made us right with him. Something that we could not do in going back to Judaism or going back to religious activity or going back to our way of doing things cannot do. And because of this, he's exalted. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it says he sits down because there's nothing left to do. It's done. He's accomplished it. And he's sitting in a place of honor because we have seen that he is the purifier he is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the heir. He is the radiance and the imprint. When we see him, we see God. So church, here's, we're, we're, I said we're going to look at these briefly, but what we want us to walk away this morning is this, that God has spoken and he has given us his son. And so if you want to know what God has said, what he has spoken, what he, what he wants for us, we look at Jesus. And in that we see God's word, intent, plan, rescue, revealed. And so we don't just give a passing glance, but we study and we pursue and we know and we meditate. Church, we don't have to know who wrote Hebrews because we get to know Jesus. We get to know the exact imprint of God, the one who has rescued us. And we want to look at these things. And and if your heart isn't stirred by this this morning, right, a warning flag should go up. Why, as I think of these huge things about Jesus, am I like, yeah, that's Jesus? Versus worship, worth, honor, glory. Here's the thing I can stand here and tell you that our six month old little boy, Janner, is the calmest of our three children, that he sits still longer than the other two ever wanted to in their life combined. Right, That he has this sweet spirit and smile that we can already begin to see that he is, he's, just gonna, he's just wired differently. I can sit here and tell you that Jude is an absolute wild man. Right? You say, like, I don't need you to tell me that. But that he is also, uh, in the mornings when he hops up, he is ready to go, but he is, wants to snuggle his mom. Right? That he is sweet and kind. And that, and that he feels big, whether it's strong or whether it's good that he just feels big i can tell you that carson is considerate and thoughtful that she sees other people she's always looking to write or to do things to 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 encourage them that she has these big thoughts and wants to have these huge philosophical philosophical conversations already right at really inopportune moments right and i can tell you that their mom does a great job of just loving and serving and caring for them despite the constant mom 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 Mom, 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 right? Right? Because I can say those things because I, I'm, I'm with them and I see them and I know them. Church, if, if the way we talk about Jesus is 
Oh, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, he went to the cross. Yeah, yeah, he's, he, he did some stuff. And it feels distant or unattached or lacking emotion. Then we're not seeing Jesus. Because Jesus is the active sustainer of us. You are breathing in this moment. Your heart is continuing to beat because Jesus says it will. Because he is holding back darkness. And he has rescued us and brought us into the light. And he is taking us back to the Father. And he is pouring out grace upon grace upon grace. Some of which you have an awareness of and many of which that you don't. And that he is far bigger and far better and far more than you can ever fathom or imagine. And you could plumb the depths of him for all of eternity and not come to the bottom. And if that doesn't make our hearts soar, if that doesn't create worship and desire and treasure and longing for Jesus, then something's off. And so the author is simply going to say, don't lay down Jesus for something else. Listen, if this morning your heart is like, I, I can't talk about Jesus because he's not interacting with me. He's not, I'm not walking with him. He's not doing anything in me. Then we say, Jesus, if there's something I need to repent of, let me do it because I want to pursue you. Jesus, if it's because I don't know you, would you reveal yourself to me? Rescue me. Make me yours. Because our desire is not to see Sunday morning as the win. You simply being here is great and it is a part of what God is doing in making us family and of transforming us. But the win isn't simply that you made it. It's that you would desire to glorify and follow Jesus in all of life. And so if we look at it as I got there on Sunday, check, go do my life, I'll come back on Sunday, check, we're missing it. Because he is everything and he affects everything. The way we relate at work, the way we spend our money, the way we interact with our neighbors, the way we have hope in the midst of really hard circumstances, that we, the way we deal with our bodies breaking down, the way we deal with loss and tragedy. In everything, he is enough and he is sufficient and he does not leave us and he does not forsake us. And so church attendance is a part because it's a place where we pursue God. But it is not the win. We want you to know and to desire to trust, to follow, and to love Jesus. And the last thing, and we'll be done. The author of Hebrews is going to say this. There is no standing still in our walk with Jesus. You are either pursuing him, following him, moving after him... Or you are drifting further away and more into sin. Those are the only two options. There's no, I think I'm good. I'm just going to coast out to eternity. If that's your stance, you're falling further away. And the fleeting pleasures of sin will have a firmer, harder grasp upon you. Or we are clawing our way, walking with the one who won't leave us or forsake us looking to make it to the promised land together. And so Hebrews is going to say this, grab one another and get there together because Jesus is enough and he's better. All right, so that's where we're headed. All right, that's our beginning of Hebrews. So I'm going to pray for us. Um, the band is going to come back up. We would invite you in those first moments to sit and to let the Spirit minister to you um, as you pray, as you repent, um, as you're asking Jesus to show you how big he is. 
If you need um, someone to pray with or to talk to, there'll be some men and women in the back of the room at any point during the worship set. You're free to do that. But would we worship our King who is sustaining all of us this morning? All right, let's pray. Jesus, you are far better than, than we can imagine. And so, Lord, this morning, if there is some intellectual agreement with that, but our hearts are not stirred, if we don't find ourselves longing or treasuring you, if you feel distant, or it's like someone we used to know, God, would we repent that we have been independent for too long, we have trusted ourselves for too long, we have trusted our way of doing things for too long, that you are rich deserving and worthy of worship that you know us and that you love us father thank you that there's no hoop to jump through but we repent we turn to you we say god i need you i want you would you speak and that we would put forth then the effort to strive after you knowing that you are faithful to minister to us so lord would you be pleased with our worship Would you break through hard hearts right now who even now are going, yeah, it wasn't that big of a deal. God, would you soften hearts? Would you allow those who are holding on to something else to see the bitterness of it? Would the the fleeting pleasure pass so that they see the reality of where it's taking them? And Father, would we not be content to sit still but to move, to trust, to follow, to pursue after you?